Hi, this is Larry Hama, and you're listening to Back to the Bins. And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Stop it! Disenfranchised by the modern comics industry, producer Paul Spitaro, Dr. Bill Robinson, and Scott H. Gardner now ply the time stream in a never-ending quest to rediscover and reconnect with that unique brand of fun and excitement that can only truly be found in good old-fashioned, randomly selected comic book back issues. Journey with them now. Back. Back. To the bins. I got nowhere else to go. I got nowhere else to go. I got nothing else. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Back to the Bins. I'm Paul Spitaro, and this time out, I have a special guest, Mr. Zaki Hassan. Welcome to the show, Zaki. Yo, Joe. <laughs> uh, and we'll get into Joe in a minute now. As we were just saying before we started to record, we've been talking for uh, probably over a year about when we could finally get Zachy onto the show. Uh, you know, he's he's made a few appearances on Is It Yours, and uh, you know we've we've talked a lot of movies, but we really haven't talked comics. But anybody who's seen Zachy's Facebook page or if they uh, follow him on Nostalgia Theater knows that he has a love of comics. That fits right in with the uh, listeners of this show. So I threw out the invitation and it took a long time for us to find a mutually acceptable time to record something. But here we are. So I want to start off. I want to thank you for making the time to come on. And I wanted to ask you, how did you get into comics? What was your uh, background? Uh, I would have to say 7-Eleven was my gateway drug. Uh, or my gateway drug dealer, I guess, if we take the metaphor. <laughs> you know, I, I, uh, my brother's five years older than me, and when we were kids, uh, uh, he and I used to walk to the 7-Eleven that was uh, uh, a couple blocks over, and, you know, they had their spinner rack, and I have so many fond memories of just, uh, you know, being a little kid and, and uh, getting, you know, whatever whatever looked fancy. You know, I my very first Superman comic... Uh, I bought off of that spinner rack, and I, I forget the exact issue number, but it had this beautiful Gil Kane cover. Uh, uh, the story it was called "The Kid Who Played Superman." That was the story, and uh, I, I point to that comic, although maybe that that memory is a little bit arbitrary. But I point to that as sort of the one that got me going. No, I think a few of us have that. I have my one that got me going, which is before your time, but it was Spider-Man number one thirty-one. Okay. Uh, with the famous Aunt May marrying Doc Ock on the cover. Uh, so, <laughs> my my uh, uncle, my enemy, is like one of those. It was actually, it was with this ring, I, the web. Ah, see, okay. <laughs> uh, we, we actually, because it's such a strong memory for me, we covered it on an episode of the show one time. But you do something, I, I don't want to say it's unique, because I know I've seen other people who do it, but you seem to have taken it to an art form uh, that others <laughs> I know don't do at all. And that's binding your comics and, and setting them up uh, in consecutive runs of series. Uh, and they all look so cool to me. I'm, I'm, oh, I'm jealous you. 
But at the same time, I'm glad that I haven't fallen down that rabbit hole because it does seem like a deep one. <laughs> this this is my vice in the absence of smack and blow and hookers, right? So this is uh, this is this is my one vice, and my wife just puts up with it. So I guess uh, uh, on on the list, it's it's a relatively minor, you know, affectation. Yeah, you know what I find that that spouses are indulgent of us largely with some of this stuff uh, because they know what vices some other people have <laughs> and, and ours seems much more harmless to them than, than what other people are out there doing. It's so I true. think that's the biggest reason, except when it starts to get to the point where it's like, okay, we have these monthly bills and I can't pay for the utilities because you got this comic series bound. <laughs> you know, I think that's where yeah. you might lose her. The the nice thing, and, and I've been uh, binding comics for, for 13 years at this point, and uh, the nice thing is it truly is, even as you are objectively destroying your comics, you are actually strapping a booster rocket to the retail value, uh, the resale value, excuse me, because you've, you've created this absolutely unique one-of-a-kind collectible that people love to have on their shelf. Have you resold any of them? Oh, I do it constantly. I I, okay. I have one. I have sets paying for other sets. Okay, so so then that's that's where you keep her at bay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You <laughs> know? She's, how could she complain if you're using the money you make in binding to get more things bound? It's you know I'll tell you this just happened and I think it's a fascinating uh, anecdote. Uh, the the bindery that I use, you know, I've been using them for for more than ten years or almost ten years at this point. Uh, they contacted me earlier this year at the start of the year, and they're like, "We we you know one of our regular customers he dropped off just a metric crap ton of books. I mean, I don't even know how many. And he they th- this is the binders telling me this. He died. The guy who the customer passed away. And uh, they they contacted me. They're like, you know, we want to sort of contact our regulars and say, well, we've got this stack of books that the family does not want. So this person has died. We got these books. We don't do it. Family doesn't want them. So we're willing to, you know, if anybody wants them, we'll just take them. And they, they, they quoted me a kind of a ridiculous price just for, for the whole kit and caboodle. And I said, well, I can't, I can't do that all in one shot, but you know, if you start parting with specific runs, just let me know. Which cut to a couple of months later, they ended up doing, and so I purchased several um, of these books, and I'm kind of flipping through, and I'm it's there's something weirdly morbid about like this is the work that somebody else did and and mapped out their collection, and they don't even get to hold it in their hand. You know what I mean? Now these 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 are books that they had already bound, but the person who owned them hadn't been able to pick them up because he that's exactly he right. Pass, okay, pass so I wasn't sure if they were pre-binding or post-binding that they were. Yeah, it, it was like a guy drops him off. He's like, I'll see you in two months or whatever. And between then and completion, he passes away. Okay. And do you don't pay right. for them in advance when you drop them off? No, it's, yeah, the way it works is they'll finish and then they'll just send you your invoice and you just pay the, you pay the money and you get your books, right? Mm-hmm. And, and Which so, I guess you know, it's probably I, safe for them because people don't generally drop off books and then say, oh, forget. Right. Yeah. It's not exactly a dine and ditch, you know? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. You know, and so I, I bought, you know, a handful of books and, and this is a very long way of telling the story. Uh, those books I bought with the express intent of selling. 
And right. I, you know, I paid the cost of, you know, like whatever it cost these guys to bind the, the, the books, you know, and I, you know, not, not the actual cost of the issues. So I ended up making about four times my initial investment. And then that, what I made off of those books paid for the order that I dropped off. No, so that works out. But no, nothing <laughs> that you were going to keep. Exactly. Like I've, I've got a specific format that I like to use for my books and I don't like deviating from that. So it, they were beautiful books. And, and I was just, it was just thinking like, who could it, like, could this guy have imagined, uh, you know, that they'd just be, you know, it's, it's like the story of these books that he never even got to see. And they go from one owner to another. Who would have known, you know? Yeah, it's definitely, it's fascinating. And, <laughs> and, uh, I'm just, you know, like I'm curious, and I don't want—I don't want to ask you to divulge too much or something that you're not comfortable with. Yeah. But how do you arrive at a price when you resell? Because first of all, obviously you have to recoup the binding price. That's the—that's the first point. Yeah. But then you're also going to have to deal with, you know, what it took you to put together that run of books, what that series cost, what the resale value of that series is it's it almost seems like incredibly subjective it it is incredibly subjective so so i i have a general ballpark for how much i like to charge per book and and i usually stick to that but it also varies right so you know i'm I, as i'm talking to you i'm looking at my bookshelf and i've got two two runs that are laid out in front of me i have batman uh from 1982 to 2002, and it's Batman and Detective Comics bound together in uh, roughly uh, it's uh, it's 29 volumes. And then right next to that, I have X Men from 1981 to 2001, and that includes X Men plus Uncanny X Men plus all the various crossovers in 25 volumes. Now I don't plan to part with either of those sets at any time, but I know that if I were to list those on eBay. I could almost name my price and somebody would buy them. Hmm. Is that you where know? you resell them on eBay? Yeah. eBay is usually the place, um, you know, the comic stores, they're not going to know what to do with it, but eBay, like, I mean, you, 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 you own the market a little bit. I mean, I could, I could easily get three grand for these, these Batman books that I'm looking at, you know, totally up to you. Do you want to give your uh, eBay name in case anybody listening <laughs> is interested in seeing if you're selling anything that they want? Yeah. It's uh, what is my eBay? It's Mr. Boy North M R B O Y North. Okay. Interesting. And I, you know, I, I just, you know, full, full uh, disclosure to anybody listening. Uh, I didn't think, nor did Zachy request that this be a <laughs> forum for him to pimp his, uh, his, yeah. his binding, uh, books uh it's just i find the whole th you know i see when when you post them on on facebook and and i think they look beautiful and um and, you know this really all comes just from my being curious about it not not any effort to uh to hook any <laughs> buyers but if somebody I mean, is interested certainly go check it out well what i would suggest rather than me trying to sell anybody anything really if if, if you're interested in just seeing the way the books look uh follow me on twitter because I post pictures on there all the time, not because I'm trying to sell, but because I'm like, oh, I just got these back from the buying and they look really nice. And so my my, my Twitter handle is, is Zachy's Corner, Z-A-K-I's Corner, and I, I I post pictures all the time. I mean, I, I, uh, for me, binding is what re-energized my love of the hobby 
because it's there's just something i mean to say uh you're like doing something with your own hands wildly over you know you know it overestimates what what i myself am doing but there's just something fun about mapping out a run and finding the missing little things and you know and and like making it's it's a book that you have made yourself in that it is absolutely unique to whatever you want it to be yeah i mean and and i've seen you know you you do have you know the uh imprint on it of like the the big x on the x-men books and yeah you know, it, it definitely looks really cool it's just like i said it's another rabbit hole that i, <laughs> I need to very carefully walk over even though, even though I, like as i walk over i'm leaning down looking into it <laughs> and could, could, somebody comes up behind me gives me a little shove i'm done yeah <laughs> I would, I would get, just get myself, I, I don't think I'd get myself in trouble. Uh, my biggest issue with something like that probably would be, and I think you and I discussed this at one point, uh, would be the uh, the space they take up just on, on shelves and whatever. And I know you said it, it, they actually don't really take up more space than the books uh, in, in long boxes, but I would still need the shelf space to display them if I had them. I wouldn't want to get That's them true. and pack them away in a long box. And That's I, true. That, that is at a uh, premium in my home. Yeah, I hear you. I uh, it's it's uh, it's getting there for me. I have to become very clever about where I where I stack these things. The kids' rooms don't need any other things except for these books. All over. that's right. The, the kids <laughs> know that that I love my books more than them, so they know to <laughs> to step very. They 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 you know they, they're on probation. The books aren't. You know they know. That. I can always have another kid, but this is a unique volume of this book. <laughs> That's right. I'm not going to get uh, X Men 266 easily again. So, you know, watch yourself. <laughs> so now let me ask you. Let's let's see if I could segue this over. Have you gotten GI Joe uh, bound? Oh yeah, that was one of my one of my first ones. And the, the, were those keepers? I assume. Those yeah yeah the, you know GI Joe is one of the comic series uh, specifically the original marvel run that is probably most valuable to me like like if i had to preserve any one of my sets that i've had done which would be a, a herculean uh, you know impossible task but i think gi joe is a very strong contender to being the one that i'd hold in my arms you know running out of the house in, in like a bathrobe and bunny slippers or something you know okay well I won't. I won't ask you to part with them. Do you? Do you have the entire Marvel run in there? I have the entire Marvel series. I have uh, all of Special Missions, plus uh, various uh, one shots and everything else. I am and the. I was lucky enough to get my book, my first volume, signed by Mike Vosberg, who did a bunch of the early issues, and also Herb Trimpey, who has since passed away, who did you know basically the first year of the book. Uh, so that's. Uh, very special to me now, and I'm I'm hoping one day to to have Larry Hama, who 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 you know Godfather the whole thing. I'm hoping to have him uh, hold the books in his hand and you know uh, take a look at at what I mean. Truly, like I I look at his work as one of those things that launched me into uh, my career as a writer. You know, I don't I don't say that lightly. Well, we met Larry Hama at Eternal Con here on Long Island about. I guess it's probably about four or five years ago now. Uh, we had a big Long Island get together of, uh, you know, our our 
Facebook group from uh, Two True Freaks, and hmm. we went to this con, and he was there, and he w- he was very receptive uh, hmm. when we went and spoke to him, and we were, you know, he signed some autographs for, on some things for us, and he even gave us a, uh, you know, I'm Larry Howman, and you're listening to Back to the Bins bumper. Oh, nice. Uh, so, you know, he was very, very cool and very, uh, very approachable. So hopefully he'll be doing a con out by, out by you, and you can get that done. I hope so. You know, I I, uh, I did an interview with him about seven years ago, and this is when I was writing for Huffington Post, and it was just uh, the second G.I. Joe live action movie was about to come out, and so I was like, oh, you know, movie's coming out, and I'd love to spotlight you, what you did, you know, and you know, expose it to a broader audience, and so we arranged a time to, to talk, and and uh, he'd given me his cell, and so I, like, texted him, like, you know, I just want to make sure we're okay, and he texted me back, and I had this moment of, like, like by then I had interviewed many different filmmakers and actors, but I'm like, I just texted with Larry Hammer. <laughs> That's it, man. Like, I don't need anything else, you know? <laughs> yeah. That's it. It's night. Nice. Nice. You just dig out that number. And, hey, Larry, remember me? Yeah. Remember I me? This book. Like... I'd love you to sign. <laughs> <laughs> so if, if that doesn't let the cat out of the bag that we are covering some issues of GI Joe, uh, I think, you know, then you weren't listening carefully enough. That's right. We, we lost you already. We bored you with the binding talk, and that's it. So Zaki suggested that we cover the Snake Eyes trilogy from G.I. Joe issues 94, 95, and 96. Now, I'm going to start off, uh, once again, full disclosure. I have pretty much zero connection to this G.I. Joe. Uh, as a kid, because I'm an old man now, uh <laughs> My, my G.I. Joe playing years predated uh, this iteration of G.I. Joe. When I, uh, when, I, when I was of an age to have G.I. Joe in my toy box, it was the, you know, the larger, I, I think, 14-inch, I'm not 100% certain, uh, G.I. Joe with the lifelike hair and the kung fu grip. Uh, <laughs> that, that was, you know... That came and kind of went, it faded into obscurity. And then when they introduced this series, uh, which was, I'm trying to think, now was it probably around like 1980 maybe? Somewhere around there? When, 82 is when the, the second, when A Real American Hero started, yeah. Okay, yeah. So that by that time I was, you know, a little, I, I was past that age. Uh, so, you know, I, I don't really have a lot of familiarity with it. When they came out with the live action uh, film. My son and I went to see the first one. Uh, he was still, you know, fairly young at that time. I, I don't even know how long ago that was. Uh, we had planned to see the second one, but we never did. Mm-hmm. So, and I, I, you know, the first one. I know the first one got a lot of criticism, and I always had the impression that a lot of the criticism was from people, uh, possibly such as yourself who had yeah. a, a familiarity and a love with, of the series and didn't like the way it was changed. Whereas I didn't have that. And just sitting, you know, objectively watching it, I thought, well, this is entertaining. You know, it, it didn't, it neither uh, hooked me to think it was great, nor did it upset me in any way. I thought it was just a, 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 you know, fairly fun movie to just sit and watch and, you know, with, with my young son at the time and then, you know, leave it on the back burner and move on. So I think was, that's what was fair. your take I, on that film? Uh, yeah, I was I was disappointed in it for precisely 
the ways in which I felt that it uh, dispensed with a really rich mythology uh, that you know that had been originated in the, in the original in the in the comic books and did something you know lesser like a very surface level like it felt to me if if i were to char- if i were to sum up the difference my perceived difference between the first film and the second is steven summers who directed the first film uh he did not strike me as somebody who had any real affinity for the you know the the real the real american hero line and he was sort of handed this thing and he did whatever with it uh whereas the second film which is directed by john m chu who's now become kind of a big name because he did Crazy Rich Asians, you can tell he grew up with it. And he, he brought that, that childish uh, attachment to, to the, the, the brand, which I really appreciated because it's like, uh, it, felt, it felt to me, this is, I'm talking about the second one, it felt like the G.I. Joe movie I would have loved to have seen when I was 10 years old. I don't know if that makes sense. Did I, did I lose you? Can you hear me? Hello? Hey, where did I oh, lose you? You know what happened? Uh, I got muted out. <laughs> and oh, I didn't no. realize to unmute myself because I was just going into a whole speech there. Oh, oops. So, but I but I, I picked up everything you said so I could just oh, go okay. right on to it. Uh, I just have to remember what I, what I was saying. <laughs> Sorry uh, about that. No, it's, it's my fault. Uh, so as as we sit here today uh Zachy had recommended that we do the snake eyes trilogy uh and again i had no familiarity with it so i did a quick search on uh online to see if i could find kind of a brief synopsis of it i sat down and read it don't uh, don't get me wrong uh <laughs> but i tried to see if i could find a synopsis and i did find on the snake eyes page on wikipedia they have one paragraph that just kind of describes it a little bit. It says, uh, Snake Eyes and Storm Shadow would team up for some of G.I. Joe's toughest missions, and the bond between them would be both strengthened and tested. In a story arc titled The Snake Eyes Trilogy, the Baroness seeks revenge upon Snake Eyes under the mistaken belief that he had killed her brother in Southeast Asia. She captures Snake Eyes while he is recovering from plastic surgery to repair his face and shoots Scarlet in the process. Storm Shadow, Stalker, and Wade Collins lead a rescue at the Cobra Consulate building where Snake Eyes was imprisoned. After a second rescue mission for George Strawhacker and a run-in with Night Creepers, Snake Eyes is finally reunited with Scarlet. For the first time in many years, Snake Eyes speaks Scarlet's name and she wakes from her coma, eventually returning to active duty. Which right off the bat, uh, she gets shot in the head. Yes. So I don't see. First of all, I don't see recovering ever, and I certainly don't see recovering no. to active duty. But that's you know, it's it's kind of a cool moment when she gets shot. Just because yes. it's like one of those OMG moments. But yes, and and yeah. <laughs> but but when they when they say oh it was just a flesh wound, I mean it's like really. <laughs> It's I, the the Joe comics would oftentimes use kind of like ninja powers as like a way to hand wave, uh, you know, stuff like that. And and uh, all I'll offer is that uh, reading these issues contemporaneously as a you know as a ten year old, the 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 time between Scarlet getting shot and and eventually coming out of that coma, which was several issues later. 
was absolutely excruciating. I mean, six months might as well be six years, you know, when you're a little kid. You sound like the lady on chores. <laughs> and if anybody doesn't get that reference, you gotta you gotta watch the scene when they talk about closing the beaches. Uh, it's true. But, but uh, yeah, I, I could see that. Now you you t- had told me that you, because just for anybody who doesn't know, Zach, he spent part of his childhood in Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. Uh, now when you earlier you were talking about when you first got into comics at Seven Eleven, I assume that was not in Saudi Arabia. That was not. That was in uh, in Tinley Park, Illinois. I was I was uh, I was three years old, and then uh, very shortly after that, we moved to Saudi Arabia, and uh, so I spent uh, roughly roughly ten years in, and I think nine years from three to twelve. I was I was in, living in Riyadh, and uh, I you know over there it's again you couldn't just walk a couple blocks to the Seven Eleven. Comic books were relatively hard to find, and when you could find them, they were you know, it was only a handful of titles. So uh, the three books that were most readily available month to month were Marvel Tales, Adventures of Superman, and G.I. Joe. And I find it fascinating that G.I. Joe would be available, not, not just in Saudi Arabia, but almost any other country, because it's such an American-centric uh, thought. Yeah, it's interesting, uh, or, right? So, so it just seems strange to me that 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 would be something that you'd find. I'm wondering if if there was some sort of a, uh, you know, American transplant contingency down or contingent down there that they were trying to market it to to send it down there, or if it's just you know, hey, we think this stuff translates to all over the world, even though it's, you know, rah rah America. That's a, you know, well, see over there. Um... You know the 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 place where you could buy American comics was was Safeway, which is uh, I, don't, I don't know if you guys have Safeway on the East Coast, but we have we have them over here. Um, it's the grocery store, and uh, you know over there there were many grocery stores, but there was only one Safeway, and so that's where the Americans went. And so I think just to just to pick up on the point you're making, I think there was an understanding that well. The majority of people shopping here are Americans, and this would be a comic that would appeal to them. Yeah, so I'm just wondering now, like, in other places in Saudi Arabia where comic books might be available, if they uh, there, would have there, different I mean, books there. There weren't very many places. I mean, it was, it was a there were, there were only a handful of places where you could buy comic books there. So when when I was a young kid, when I first got into comics. Uh, there weren't many comic book stores, sure. but there would be, you know, the local candy store or, you know, magazine shop or, what, you know, whatever. Uh, or like you say, a supermarket, which would have a little little shelf full of comics or whatever. But, what, you know, before you had the situation where you could actually have like a pull list from someplace, uh, you know, you always scrambled to make sure you got every issue because sometimes... Some stores would, you know, wouldn't have a particular issue or whatever. So I know yeah. for me as a kid, you know, as a young kid, uh, anytime I would be somewhere with my parents away from home, I would be looking for a candy store or, a, you know, whatever whatever type of shop might have comics. And I'd want to go in and look in, on their rack to see if they had something that my store didn't have. And I don't know if that translates to Saudi Arabia or not. No, I, I can I can definitely relate to that. You know, the, it was you'd occasionally get a few different books here. Or there, there were a lot of uh, 
UK comics. So like Dan Dare and Eagle. Um, a lot of that stuff was there, which is interesting. Mm. You know, I, I, Bino. <laughs> I think it's it's very you know just very interesting. So then at twelve years old, you came back to Illinois again. Yeah, moved back uh, to Chicago and uh, continued buying uh, GI Joe. Uh, I did not stay with the book until the very, very end, although a couple of years later I circled back and filled in the gaps. But uh, I, I would say, and the reason I suggested the Snake Eyes trilogy to you, and thank you for indulging me, by the way, is because I really, I point to that storyline in particular as the thing that really uh, sunk its teeth into me when it came to this book, and it made me fill in backwards and forwards, you know? So that that sort of like the fulcrum that the whole thing revolves around for me. Well, at the point when you first started buying them, like how far off was this? I mean, did you start buying them when this, when this, well, this came out in 1989. This is 89. And it was not the first GI Joe comic I had read. I had read, uh, several issues, like, you know, random issues here and there from throughout the run. But the first part of snake eyes trilogy was, um, what really, made me be like, okay, I want this book every month. And so I filled in backwards and, and I, I hung around for, you know, this is like 94, right? Issue 94. So probably another, you know, two years after this, I, I stuck around. So really it was like the first book where I was like, yeah, I'm doing this monthly and, and living overseas. That was, that was easier said than done, you know? Right. I can imagine. (laughs) <laughs> so now this particular story, and again, you know, I'm, I'm reading this totally cold. I mean, I have a vague, you know, from the movie and whatever, I have a vague understanding as to who some of these characters are. Uh, but, you know, very superficial. As, as you said, the movie is kind of superficial. Uh, yes. And it's probably not giving me a true characterization of, of the characters. Uh, so I'm, I'm coming into this kind of cold. And I read through it, and I found it to be an interesting story. I found it to be entertaining to read, but I never felt like it really pulled me in personally. And I think it's that lack of familiarity with the characters that kind of made it a little bit more standoffish to me. Uh, Because as I'm reading it, I'm finding the artwork to be very accessible, almost in, in its own way. A lot of the panels look very similar to John Byrne to me. Oh, sure. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. So and and John Byrne's one of my favorite artists, so that that's easy. And and Larry Hama's writing is, you know, it's not. I don't I don't feel like it's overly simplistic or overly complex, uh, except it seems like sometimes when he goes into flashbacks, he doesn't really do a good job of explaining to you that he's flashing back or or moving mm-hmm. forward or what he's you know what exactly he he's expecting you as the reader to kind of just figure it out. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah. I, I think if had the panels had like little, you know, curvatures along the edges that might have been, you know, that, that's like flashback shorthand, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's that's an easy way to, to tell. Or or even if the word, you know, the uh, narration boxes had kind of just made it clear. Right. Uh, so so now what happens this? Uh, her Her brother has like a heart attack. Is that what happens? And she thinks he kills him. No, so so her brother is killed by these, um, um, you know, these rogue agents in the in the Vietnamese government, and Snake Eyes kills them, 
but it's one of those things where she comes in right after this happened, and so she sees Snake Eyes standing over her brother's body with a smoking gun, and she just makes this connection. And there's no there's no one there to to say otherwise, right? Right. Okay. But uh, you know what? I'm and, I'm I'm looking at the, at the pages, and you see him, you know, shoot. You see them starting to shoot, or well, he's shooting. No, he's being shot. You know what? That's what it is. In the, in the panel <laughs> where he's getting shot, the yes. coloring has the shooter having a shadow on him, but the shadow is the blue color of his shirt. So I'm thinking that's him shooting the gun for a second. And then I uh, go forward and I see him holding his chest. And I'm thinking, oh, he must have had a heart attack after that or something. Oh, gotcha. So it, it totally, you know, I, I was totally misreading that. Okay, so now that becomes clearer. Okay, <laughs> thank you. So, uh, yeah, Scarlet comes in and she rescues Snake Eyes from. Now, what's the doctor doing here again? The doctor's performing surgery to fix him, but then they yeah, make it so, sound as if he's got some sort of nefarious purposes here. Well, so so this is the great thing about the tapestry that Larry Hama wove. And bear in mind, the cool thing for me was. I essentially came into this comic cold with with this issue. I mean, you I came into it cold at like seven years old, and are doing better with it than I am at you know is in middle age. <laughs> well, I, I think I was ten, but yeah, I, I I I I take your your meaning. I think I think for me, uh, I came into the comic book with really my knowledge of the characters because I had the action figures and my knowledge of the animated series. So I knew the characters and the, the dynamics of the world. Uh, reading this comic was the equivalent of, uh, you know, um, it's, it's like, you know, if, if you watched, uh, the Robocop animated series and then realized later that there was a movie, you know, mm. it, it was like that. Like to me, there was this level of sophistication and it was much darker. Obviously, uh, you know, you've got uh, uh, Scarlet getting shot point blank in the head. And as far as you know, she's dead. Uh, that was something brand new for me. And I was like, oh, my gosh, like they're doing something really awesome with these characters, you know. And I had already loved Snake Eyes because he's Snake Eyes and he's always been like the coolest G.I. Joe. You know, the, the second release of the Snake Eyes figure from, I think it was 1984, that's the first G.I. Joe, among the first G.I. Joes I ever got, you know, so I always liked the character, and then, oh, it's the Snake Eyes trilogy, oh, and I'm like, oh, the comics uh, treat this character just as importantly as I do in my little games, you know, and what I loved is this little series within a series, which, if I'm not mistaken, was originally intended to be a, stand, a graphic novel, like a G.I. Joe graphic novel. They, they incorporated it into the, the main title instead. But uh, there's so many pieces uh, of story that pay off here that were laid in place, I mean, 10, 20, 30, you know, 40 issues ago. So as far as what you're saying about the the, the doctor, Dr. Hundkinder, I think his name, he this is something when I read the issue, I didn't realize I found out only after the fact many, many issues ago, the scar, uh, sorry, the, the Baroness had uh, gotten into a, an accident and her face required reconstruction. So she went to him and then, you know, this many issues later, snake eyes in the previous issue, which you may have missed, we actually see snake eyes, face for the first time. So nine issue, 93, 93 issues in, we've never seen his face. We finally see the disfigurement. 
and we realize that oh the guy who's fixing his face is the same guy who fixed baroness's face so he's got you know reason to to rope her in on this be like hey that guy who you're pissed off about he's he's coming to my clinic um and and i love that i love the way you and and really really you can only do this well when you've got one person who's 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 telling this, the the story right so larry hammer from the jump he's doing it so he's planting seeds that aren't necessarily intended to pay off later but the option is there and so that's what the gi joe book from marvel was really able to do well is you would have something happen in issue 25 that in issue 82 would pay off and that's that's a lost art in comics unfortunately it really is well the, the the you know now at this point with very limited exceptions, the creative teams don't ever have an anticipation of being around that long. No. You know, it, it's a little different when you have, you know, Robert Kirkland, Kirkman, uh, you know, creating a series and staying with it for the entire run or, or uh, you know, like Why the Last Man or something like that. Uh, yeah. But but other than those ex- exceptions to the rule, you know, when it's when it's a character that belongs to a company and not, you know, the specific creator, they never anticipate being around, I think, more than, you know, a couple of years at most. It's true. And I, I think, you know, look at look at what Claremont did on X-Men, right? Uh, that that was a book that was constantly tonally changing. Uh, it was, you know, it was it, it felt like uh, a long running uh, a television series where you'd have cast members rotate in and out, you know? And and I I honestly I look at Larry Hama on Joe and Chris Claremont on on X Men and I'm like, in terms of what Marvel did in that era, it's those two guys. In, in terms of being able to tell story stories on on such a long running canvas. And you know I I will add to that uh, on a slightly lower level, but I think along the same lines, and I think it comes from his time collaborating with Claremont. But I think Byrne did a lot of that with the Fantastic Four as well. Yes, I, I agree. I agree. So, yeah, I, I like that aspect. It, it, it's something that enriches the whole process of reading, you know, of staying with the series. But it does make it a little less accessible to the newcomer uh, when the newcomer is me. When the newcomer is you, <laughs> it clearly works much better. I think there's an element of youth when you first get into this where you get this insatiable thirst to get the information and i remember you know in when i first started collecting Mm -hmm. comics i you know the asterisks with the you know callback to you know the footnotes uh to where something you know previously happened were very big at the time and every time i'd see a footnote that referred to something that happened in the past it, it became like another book to add to my want list that i need to have that book to see when that happened so i can understand it better and i think that there's an element of that in youth that you might lose a little bit as you get older at least i have uh that i i, I want things laid out for me a little bit better now uh and I, I i don't have the time the patience or the years left on my life to uh, to go through everything so painstakingly yeah. like that now what you say is dead on. And I, I think back to me at 10 and I, I read this again, in essence, this is my first GI Joe comic, right? I mean, I've read others, but really this is the first time I'm really plugging in. And I'm like, this is clearly a story 
that's in medias res. Even though it's part one of this storyline, clearly there's a whole bunch of balls in there that I don't know anything about, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm not, I'm not reacting to it like, well, I don't know what the hell's going on. Screw this and throw the book out the window. I'm like, this is awesome. Like, what? I don't know what's going on, but it's cool, you know. And yeah, and I, that I, is like, I, you know, that's I, I miss, I miss that. I miss being that, you know. Yeah, and I know exactly what you're talking about because I do remember being at that age, not this series because this didn't exist then, but I remember being at that age and just being willing to roll with that so much more than I am now. Yes. Now, especially, and I think part of it is that you, you know, the youthful element as compared to the older, crotchety, get off my lawn kind of guy. Uh, <laughs> but also, some of it is the impatience that I think comes with so much information being available at our fingertips. The fact that when there's when I when I'm reading through something like this, if I have the desire to, I can go on the internet and I can find something to explain to me what I'm not getting. Yeah. So I think, you know, that that makes me a little bit less willing to take those steps to get there. On the other right. hand, every once in a while, I do find myself saying, OK, you know what, I'm going to, you know, this this series that I've always heard about. I'm going to start at issue one and I'm going to work my way through it. And sometimes I do. And sometimes halfway through a flaw, a moth goes by and I, it distracts me and then I'm done. <laughs> right. So, you know, this this particular three three issues set as i'm reading through it i'm finding it to be entertaining but as i said I'm, i never really totally got pulled in by it and i can't attribute that to any weakness in the series so much as my own internal weakness uh so you know i i but I, but i'm looking at it, i'm thinking the art looks terrific it's 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 very clean art which is what i generally prefer uh you know nice line work i think you know for the most part the storytelling is good although i thought he was having a heart attack but that's that's more (laughs) based on coloring than anything else and i do notice now that those pages where they show that uh they do have uh in some of them there they do have the curved curved boxes oh okay only when it's showing it from her perspective I, i guess because there's the one page where he's clutching his chest and falling to the ground, and she's opening the door and looks out at Snake Eyes and says, you murdered him. That one has the curved corners on the boxes. Just that one page. Yes, you're right. You're right. I'm I'm looking at that myself. Which is interesting that they chose to do it there, but not elsewhere. So then then we're going through this, and... uh, all of a sudden, you know, a guy in a chicken suit comes out of a car, and I'm like, what the heck is going on here? Right. <laughs> so I did look him up to find out who he was because I wasn't Raptor. sure his character of Raptor, and I wasn't sure, is he a good guy? Is, a ba- is he a bad guy? What you know, what the heck is going on here? And apparently he's a bad guy, but he's kind of he's the, doing he's the his Cobra own. accountant. Yes, former accountant wearing a bird suit. So, which is just a weird, yeah, and weird and thing. and you know, Paul, that's that actually what you're describing is like a perfect thing, right? Like when I, you know, these the final couple pages where you've got Billy, who's Cobra Commander's son, who I didn't know that at the time. Uh, I don't know he had a son, and and again, my my instinct at that moment is, oh wow, well that's it, Cobra Commander's son. Wow, give me more, you know. And so now I want to read the next issue, and and I love that the storyline involving Billy and, and, uh, you know, the search for Cobra Commander. I didn't even know it was dead. 
you know, it, it extended beyond the four squares of this uh, storyline. And so it, it really was inviting. And one, you know, one can be very cynical about it. But I mean, the nice thing about being a kid is you, you, you view things in an uncynical way. I was like, oh, this is exciting. There's just there's more story that they're telling, you know. Right, right. Yeah. No, I, and, I don't disagree with that thought. Yeah. It's just I, I find it amusing. You know, it's it's only in comic books, you know, that you can have a guy walking around in a uh, in a bird right. suit and it's OK. <laughs> uh, you know, how many how many people do you see in real life with with eye patches? Not very many, really. Right. But in comics, it's like every fifth or sixth person has an eye patch, it seems. Well, Bazooka Joe, right? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> every pack of gum, you got a guy in an eye patch. <laughs> So yeah, but that, that you know they gave you more to pull you in. Then uh, you know there's there's a lot of stuff going on with uh, as as I'm going through this with Snake Eyes, just it, it reminded me a little bit of you know like Die or he reminds he reminds me a little bit of of Bruce Willis in Die Hard or Mel Gibson in Lethal Weapon. Just you know no matter what, no matter how much at the enemy's mercy he is, right? He's the favorite to win. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah it's, it's 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 interesting to me that you have a character who is mute who who does not speak at any point again the, the first thing he ever says in the entire book is, is scarlet's name um and yet he is the star of the series right they're doing a, a snake eyes solo movie that's well it's supposed to come out in october i don't think it is now but but you know, I, that that's endlessly fascinating to me because I'm like that. He's such a unique character. He's completely mute, and yet the entire franchise revolves around him. Uh, you know, and really, in in the context of of the Marvel run, uh, both GI Joe and Cobra, their histories revolve around him. And now, it's is quite he a mute, mute by choice, or is he mute because of a physical deficiency? Since he, he does yeah, say her so, name, he, yeah, he he was in a uh, in a helicopter accident at a point where G.I. Joe, it was after he had been in the military, excuse me, in, in, in active service in Vietnam, he'd come home, he was recruited by G.I. Joe, and there was a helicopter collision, and so essentially a uh, an explosion occurred in his face, basically, and so it left him disfigured and his, his vocal cords uh, traumatized. Um and so from that point on, he just doesn't speak. It's, it's, I mean, it is a definitely a very rich history that, that they wove uh, for these characters. I, I'm sure, you know, Hama had a, a probably had a Bible with each one's, uh, you know, backstory that he developed over the time. Uh, so just, just moving along with it, though, uh, now he, he ends up getting his face disfigured again anyway, right? Uh, but not to the same extent. So, so he, he has some hot, uh, uh, coals thrown in his face. And so he, he has some scarring, but it's like quote unquote cool scarring. You know, it's like a cable or something. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he's nowhere near as, as disfigured as he is before the storyline. So that's also, I, I appreciated that, um, that they didn't just unring the bell, you know, like, oh, Harvey Dent is cured. Oops, no, he's not. You know, and he's got the same exact scarring he had before. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, exactly. Yeah, um, I, I, I have this now slight distaste, even though I have a total understanding for why. But I have a slight distaste for the okay, we're going to always go back to status quo. Yeah, you know, 
and and I you know as I said I totally understand why, but it it it's soured me on newer books for that reason, just because I you know it's for example my favorite character has always been Spider Man. Uh, I don't need to read whatever however many between all the series and everything. I don't need to read eight hundred different issues to keep coming back to the same status totally that we good. had after a hundred issues. I totally agree. Uh, so I'd much rather focus on a finite number. So in my collecting, I've basically took cutoff points on different series. For example, Spider-Man, uh, I don't, I, I've decided to end it as far as I'm concerned at issue 300. Uh, okay. Issues after that, I, I no, are no longer a part of my, uh, my collection. Huh. Uh, Interesting. So, you know, it, it's just, I had to, I had to cut it off at somewhere for uh, my own mental well-being and for spatial <laughs> reasons that we were talking about earlier. Right. You know, I can. There's only so much room in the house that I can uh, dedicate to my comic collection, and and there's only so much. And we've talked about this on the show a lot too. There's only so much that I want to burden my kids that when I'm not here one day and they don't <laughs> want these comics. So, yeah. uh, you know, by, by limiting how many I have to some extent, and it's not limited that much, but at least I'm saving them getting rid of some. Right. When, when all is said and done. Because uh, <laughs> I don't know, I don't know, how, you know, your, your kids, I know they're very into the movies that you take them to. I don't know how much they go for the comics. Not not as much as me. That's, that's uh, you know, a few of them are, are okay with them, but the rest of them couldn't, couldn't, can't really be bothered. So I have to say I was very, I don't know, I, I already mentioned it, but I was very disappointed with after the dramatic moment of shooting Scarlet in the head when they when they just kind of nonchalantly say, yeah, it just kind of was a grazing blow. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, she was shot at point blank. Yeah, uh, she she should have been extremely dead. Uh, there's no doubt. However, uh, I think. Uh, uh, the, the the second part of, of the storyline, uh, you have, you know, she's being medevaced out and you've got Hawk uh, talking to her as she's, you know, she's comatose and he's just like, we're going to get them for this man. You know, again, be, being being 10 years old, you're like, oh, man, what's going to happen? I'm so, you know, her teammates are there for her, you know. Uh, and so so on a soap opera level, you, you get it, you know. Right. Yeah. And. Uh, I just wonder if there was a better way to present it so that you'd still have the oh my god moment, but then when you turned it around and said, well, you know, you didn't see it, nobody, no death or whatever, uh, you know, that it was more logically acceptable. It's interesting, I'm you know, sure. because I'm I'm think I'm thinking back, right, and I I think even then I was like. Well, clearly she's not dead. Like, that was my thought. Like, something's happened to her, but we didn't see it. Well, the only so reason I, I thought she wasn't dead was because I know she's a pivotal character, and I think I probably would have heard something about them having killed sure, her. Sure, right. But other like, than I'm, that, I'm, I mean, the way it's presented story-wise, there's, there's no way you could think that she's going to survive from the choices they make in the art. See, that's I'm again. I'm I'm thinking back to to Zachy, you know, ninety or whenever eighty nine, and I'm like, I remember, I remember being like, something's happened, but there's no way she's dead. That that was my thought. For, I was like, I was like, I want to see what happens next. 
You know what no, I mean? It, it's, it's, I mean, I, I think that is probably more a byproduct of knowing that that's, that they don't kill off these characters. Yeah. Than it is true. the actual story. That's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah. Cause, cause you know, it's funny is, is about uh, 15 issues later an issue, I think it was one Oh nine. Uh, they, they did a Gulf war storyline, uh, you know, which was contemporaneous with what was going on at the time. And they killed off a whole bunch of Joes, which I feel like was almost a direct response to the, the bait and switch with Scarlet specifically. I think I, if I were to guess, this is just, I'm like spitballing as I'm talking. Uh, there was probably a lot of what you're saying. Like now guys, come on, come on. No, hold on a second. No, 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 no. You know, that's not a coma, you know. Uh, and I wonder if uh, almost as a way of commenting, it's like, oh, you want to you want dead Joes? Here's like 10 of them, you know. Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and, and to, just to kind of bridge this to, to you and Brian talking, it, and it makes me think of the, the Simpsons. You like donuts? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Because I, I, I know you guys seem to always refer back to some sort of Simpsons comment. Uh, it, we, we're pretty good at that, right? Like we we find a way to somehow uh, just drop a Simpsons quote, and we both understand each other. Well, I'm glad I'm glad to take Brian's space just for a moment. Uh, <laughs> now the, the the shot I have to say the shot where she shoots Scarlet in the head the yeah draw, that that particular panel I think is great. The oh, art yeah, in that yeah, I think is terrific. And, yeah, and Mark, I, you, you know, know, Mark Bright, he's a good artist, man. I, I don't think he gets enough props, Mark Bright. And I'm not really familiar with him. Uh, other than G.I. Joe, what what did he do? Um, you know, he he worked with uh, uh, Jim Owsley, who is now Christopher Priest, on uh, Power Man and Iron Fist. And okay. uh, I he, have most he, of those issues, so I have seen him there and just didn't realize it. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he did the tail end of that. Certainly. Um, he also did uh, a handful of the Jim Starlin Batmans in the late 80s. And um, he's probably best known for uh, uh, Quantum and Woody, which he did with uh, with Bright. Uh, sorry, with, with he is Bright. He, he, uh, he did it with with Christopher Priest. Quantum right. and Woody. And Christopher that Priest is, with is an excellent writer. So I, I, I didn't ever yeah. write Quantum and Woody, but if... The art looks like he also this, did, well, you, you might be it. you might be familiar with this was also with Priest although again this is when he was Owsley he did the the Spider-Man versus Wolverine one shot in the, I think it was eighty seven I want to say I've they're in West seen Germany that, but I can't remember it off the top of my head and I'm not I'm also not really familiar with Randy Emberlin who inked this and uh, you know the the inking looks the the art and the inking look very clean. Yeah. Uh, and and then there's this you know some shots where it's a little bit more you know certainly in the second issue it's a little bit more dark than it is in the first issue but I think the storyline kind of calls for that uh, yeah as as it's being told uh, so you know it, it changes as far as the atmosphere of the story which I like uh, so so what I'm saying here <laughs> to, to sum it up a little bit is I think the story is very well written with you know if not unbelievable at certain points but very well written i think the artwork is really compelling and and pleasing to the eye uh and yet while i can say it's really really good i just never got totally dragged into it and i think that's more a weakness on my part than it is with the story itself 
What's your problem, Paul? <laughs> that's that's the problem. The, the problem is there's kids on my lawn. <laughs> you know, by the way, Randy Amberlin, we're pointing out, he, uh, at uh, around the same time, was inking uh, Amazing Spider-Man, and this is when Eric Larson was doing it. And I think that the combination of those two was really fantastic on that book. I don't, I don't think Larson has ever had a better inker than Randy Amberlin. And I think Larson needs a good anchor because Larson tends to be very uh, yep. exaggerated in a lot of his his work. And when you totally exaggerate agree. as much as he does, if you don't have a good anchor, then it, it starts to look sloppy. Right. Yep, 100%. So uh, I would say, and I think it's more a reflection of the time than it is of the book itself, the coloring is a little lackluster. But I think that's more just the coloring that they had available to them at the time. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think, you know, as you, as you went on a little bit further, you know, 10 years later, I think the, you know, the, the coloring systems, you know, with the computer computerization and all became much more uh, elaborate in what they could do. Uh, so the coloring in this is, is a little simplistic and I, I mean, it could be better. Uh, I would say as far as the artwork goes, that's the, probably the biggest weakness in the book, but it's not terrible. Uh, so overall, I mean, I think it's good. Is, is there any aspect of this story before I can, you know, move this along too far uh, that you feel like, you know, we didn't focus on enough and you, you'd like to kind of hit on? Because you know this so much better than I do and how much would uh, relate to other things in the series. Um, you know, I, I think this is, and this is something we talked about, but just to reiterate, I think I think the appeal, and I would argue, uh, certainly for me as somebody who you know revisited it for, for the purpose of this conversation, uh, I think the appeal is sort of the continuing, uh, for lack of a better phrase, soap opera. You know, so you have this issue is about the conflict between X and Y, but in the background you've got this storyline continuing, this storyline continuing, and that allows this really rich tapestry uh, that rewards long-term viewers, and you know. Uh, I think in that sense, you have uh, an example in comic books that's that's uh, comparable to, uh, you know, your long-running uh, drama t- television shows, you know, your Grey's Anatomy or, or your ER or whatever. Um, that again, that rewards the long-term viewer because of the 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 sense of actual forward momentum versus the the appearance of change. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't, you know, I, I think Marvel especially was very good at that for like a good 10 year window from, you know, early eighties to early nineties where they, you know, they were constantly moving the ball forward. And, you know, to your point, I think, uh, I, I, I was, I became disenchanted with the hobby when I sort of realized, oh, you know, they're just kind of like, once you see the, the machinery, you know, or the man behind the curtain, if you will. It, it becomes less fun because you're like, oh, well, they just need to get back to, to zero again. And so all of this, everything, we, this whole journey we've been on doesn't count for much. I think G.I. Joe was great at at constantly keeping the story moving, you know. It, yeah. There's a reason that in the 80s you had Uncanny X-Men, G.I. Joe, and, like, Amazing Spider-Man. Those were the books that were selling well enough to be bi-weekly, you know. Right. I think there's something to be said, though, and again, I think this is something I appreciate more, you know, as I've gotten older than I would have when I was younger. Uh, You know, often in my life, and and I talk about this with movies uh, more than I do with comics, uh, I I am a tool for uh, sequels. 
because sure. if I like something, then I want more of it. Even if it's of a slightly lesser quality, I'm still willing to, to spend more time with these characters who I've enjoyed. Uh, so in comic books, it's, it's been the same thing. But then as I'm getting older, uh, I'm seeing more or I'm getting more pleasure uh, out of seeing a full story from beginning to end that doesn't need a sequel. Uh, you know, so a series like Why the Last Man has an appeal to me now that it might not have had for me 20 years ago. Uh, because, yeah. you know, I get to see the entire run of the character and it, you know, it certainly went on long enough. It's not like it was a three issue series and done, but yeah. the story developed and it had ramifications and then it ended. Yeah. And it would be interesting, you know, uh, there was a recent book and I, I don't delve into recent books very often anymore, but there was a recent mini series and I think it was about six issues and I'm trying to remember, uh, I think it was called Spider-Man Life Story, something like that. Yeah, um, I know what you're talking about, yeah. And, and it, it took place in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Uh, and it was Spider-Man's life from when he became Spider-Man until he was an older man. Uh, you know, each each book kind of covered, you know, moved on to the next decade. So by the end, he's, you know, he's a, a middle-aged or if not, you know, senior citizen. Uh, and it, it, it had a full story encompassed in there. Now, it you know it there were it moved along extremely quickly because you only had one issue for a decade. Uh, but I did get a certain amount of pleasure out of that now, just to kind of see what it might have been like if they had continued to age the character in real time, instead mm. of you know constantly just retarding his age and keeping him, you know, somewhere between, uh, I guess he's 15 when he becomes Spider-Man and probably never hits 30. Right. So, you know, it's interesting. you know, it, it's funny because you, you talk about issue 300 being your sort of cutoff. Right. And, and, and that's just uh, a little bit I of would... arbitrariness to that, but that's, yeah, no, I, I get it. It's a round number, you know, but, but certainly I think, I think as a demarcation point, it, it works because the the arrival of Venom was, you know, a bit of a paradigm shift, you know, and it certainly pointed that character in a different direction. And that's, I mean, that's right around the time. I think he, the marriage was maybe five, six issues before that, right? Uh, I'm not sure in time exactly how it worked out because the, the marriage was in the annual uh, Isn't it, but, but like it, it, you know, it it the annual arrived around the same time as Craven's last hunt, which was, I want to say like two ninety three, two ninety four, something like that. Okay, you're probably more on the money than I would be as far as those numbers, because because I did keep buying well after that, uh, but okay. I've kind of divested myself of the later yeah. stuff. See, but but I guess, I guess the point I'm making is that for me. I remember because I I bought I hung in with Spider-Man for a while uh, through the Clone Saga through all that shit right and and I stopped right in the middle of the one more day storyline that they did that a lot and, you, you have a lot of company on stopping a lot of yeah, I'm not alone right and I remember very distinctly it, it was like maybe one issue left in that story and I was like I know where this is headed and I'm not interested in them undoing the marriage. So as far as I'm concerned, I'm out. Now that I know, I know that for some people it's like, well, he should never have gotten married anyway, right? And 
so it's interesting how these demarcation points work, right? Because for me, the fact that they undid that and went back to, to you know, Spider-Man circa 1975 in, in terms of characterization, I was like, well, that's just, you've just undone everything that I liked, you know? Right. But yeah, for other people, and, it's the opposite. And, and, you know, as I talked about earlier, where I'm a tool for sequels, uh, where a lot of people I know refused to read any further at that point. Yeah. I had this curiosity to see what are they going to do when, when they're essentially rebooting the series at this point, which it wasn't a true reboot because it's not starting up from the beginning again, but it's right. totally it's like a know, soft reboot. Yeah. Soft reboot is probably a better way to say it or, or a, uh, restructuring, whatever, however, whatever word you'd want to use to describe it. But I had a, a level of curiosity because I knew, oh, they're bringing Harry back and, and you know, they're, they're changing a lot of right. stuff. And I was curious and I did read it for a while after that. And then I fell off of it again. I, I think yeah. that was when, uh, when Kurt Connors ate his son, I think I stopped again. Oh Lord. Uh, Is that true? Yeah. That seems uh, like a lot. <laughs> but I think they've undone that story too. I think. Oh, okay. But but uh, you know, I mean, I, it it just seemed to be a bridge too far. But then I was reading it when they did the Superior Spider-Man, which I thought was actually kind of a fun run. So I kind of got pulled in, let, left again, got pulled in again, and now, uh, when it comes to newer books, if say for example, if you were to tell me, hey Paul, you got to read this story. This is really good. Uh, more than likely, I'm going to try and either pick up a trade of it or find it at the library or buy it digitally. But odds right. are very low that I'm going to actually go out and pick up the issues and bring them home. Right. Yeah, I hear that. So uh, before we get off of G.I. Joe and, and start you know, getting ready to close this out, uh, we generally rate every book. Uh, and, and this this will fall into your uh, teaching level. Uh, we we rate the cover, the interior art, and the story, and then the overall combination of them uh, mm -hmm. on with with the grades of A through F. Okay. So, I don't know if you'd prefer to do these three issues all as you know in mass, or if you'd like to do them individually. But I'm going to ask you for your. Uh, your grades on these books. Um, yeah, let's do it. Uh, let's do it in mass, right? That kind of makes more sense. I would say in mass for the story, for the art and for the overall, but the covers, uh, I'm going to ask you to give individual grades because it's three separate covers. And I think yeah, it, that's fair. That, that that's worthy of giving three separate grades. Um, well, I think uh, uh, certainly the, the story uh, both the story and art, I, I would say, are B plus A minus range. Um, I, I think it helps to be a long term reader, or to be in that specific wheelhouse. I, you know, to your point, I, I don't think there's anything particularly within the story itself that you could just hand it to somebody and be like, "You've never read GI Joe? Check this out." I, I, I don't think it works for that, and that's why I would mark it slightly down. But I think. In terms of what it is attempting to do, it it's it does does a good job with it. It's like a great season finale of a of a TV show that you're in the middle of the run. That's fair. So yeah. how how would you rank the covers? So the covers, I mean, these all three of these are by Andy Kubert, 
and this was I'm fairly certain my first exposure to his art. I I really I like the the way you know he's got that very Joe Kubert style here uh, that I love, and it it gives this this uh, uh, kind of grittiness to it. I mean, it looks like Sergeant Rock or something. Um, especially the, the the cover of part one, which is just the, the close up of Snake Eyes' face. The 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 cover of issue two, the, the the of part two. Oh my God, it's terrific! What a great cover. That, uh, as I recall, that that was the debut of that particular action figure of Snake Eyes. You know, and I think Andy Kubert made that costume look so much cooler than even the action figures managed. You know. Right. Oh, I I look at the covers. I think that of the of the three, I think that is the best cover. I think it's the most compelling. Yeah. It's the one that if you see it, you're you're most likely to say, "Ooh, I want to check out what's inside this one." Uh, I think they're all well drawn. Uh, I think the first one actually benefits, and and we've criticized very often uh, covers with too much, you know, too much word, too many words on the cover. Uh, especially when they have the words and then they have the word balloons and then they tell you it's a collector's item and it's the number one issue and whatever, and they just go overboard <laughs> with it. Uh, but I, I think actually if you have any familiarity with the character of Snake Eyes and then you see basically the headline, Snake Eyes gets a new face, and the shot of him you know, ripping off the, uh, the face bandages uh, in a close-up like that, I think it's very compelling, uh, especially if you have a familiarity with the series. But I think it's, you know, it's dramatic. It, it pulls you in. And I, I hadn't really thought about it. But, yeah, the Sergeant Rock uh, comparison is not, not bad at all. Uh, the third one, I think it's the weakest of the three. Uh, it almost reminds me of, of a Frank Miller ninja story with Daredevil. Uh, mm. But it's, it's, I mean, it's not, it's, it's well drawn. It just, it's of the three, it's the least likely to have caught my eye on the stand and made me want to pick it up. So I'm going to rate them. I'm going to, I'm going to say uh, an A minus on number 95. I'm going to say a B plus on 94, and I'm going to say a C plus on 96. So you know, they're all good. It's just a matter of uh, calibration, I guess. The interior art, as I said, I, I really like it. It's very clean and, and it's very easy to, it, it makes it easy to read, uh, which, which is good for my feeble brain sometimes. <laughs> uh, I, I think it's, like you said, solid B plus A minus level. Uh, the story, uh, it was enjoyable. I, like I said, I think it, it kind of jumps around a little bit and it, it, it assumes you have a familiarity with the characters and that isn't necessarily a weakness to the story unless you don't have familiarity to the characters. So it kind of depends on what you're looking to get out of it, I guess. Uh, but if, if you're, uh, even, even for somebody like myself who doesn't have the familiarity, I still found it enjoyable to read. It just wasn't as immersive as it could have been. So I'm going to say, Depending on your level of familiarity with it, anywhere from a B to a B plus. That's uh, fair. And and I think the same for the story overall. I mean, you know, for the for the books overall. Yeah. So, I but it you know I I 
appreciate being exposed to things I might not otherwise have been exposed to. So I'm, I'm happy that you brought this one uh, to my attention. Well, I'm I'm glad that you asked me to have this conversation. This was I, I had a lot of fun. I apologize for for geeking out over over GI Joe for for you know close to an hour. No, uh, don't for... apologize at all. This has been a blast. <laughs> so I, I, I enjoy I enjoyed going through them, and I enjoyed having you on, and I appreciate you making the time to come on. And uh, you know, if you find the time and we we can match up again, I'd love to have you on again. I, I would love that. So for everybody listening, uh, why don't you just give a quick plug to your shows, and this way, uh, if anybody is not familiar with you, they can uh, listen to you on your uh, your other forum. Nice. Well, thank you so much again uh, for asking me to do this. This is so much fun. Uh, I, I For anybody who listens to the Movie Film Podcast, which I host, uh, my partner Brian Hall is, is not a particularly big comic enthusiast, so... There's usually uh, portions of that show given over to Zachy explaining comics to Brian. And so uh, I, I, I appreciated uh, just sort of being able to fully let my geek flag fly without having to, to footnote it. You know, it's nice. <laughs> um, but, but that is the movie film podcast. I, new episodes drop every week or every other week, depending on, uh, well, how many we can, we can record. But we talk about uh, Hollywood headlines, everything new that's going on in the industry. Plus, we also do commentary tracks for uh, uh, older favorites or not favorites, you know, just movies that we feel like talking through. And then um, the other show that I host is called Nostalgia Theater, where I talk to uh, the people who created uh, the artifacts that we like. So, you know, uh, my very first episode of that show was an interview with Buzz Dixon, who was story editor of the animated Joe series. So... Uh, I put my money where my mouth is when it comes to my G.I. Joe fandom. (laughs) So, and, you know, I'll just make a point of saying I I listen to both of those shows regularly. And when they come out, they go pretty high on my uh, listening queue. So I I recommend them heartily. Uh, And again, Zachy, thanks for coming on. Everybody who's in listening, thank you for listening. And we'll see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at bins at twotruefreaks.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of Demanzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Please take a moment to stop by the twotruefreaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. Darn, that's the end. <laughs>